0: How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the Internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did synchronized swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create The Wrap Dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, Peer-to-Peer Conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. Hello, I'm David Rubenstein, and I'm pleased to be joining Conversation by Jonathan Friedland, a prize-winning journalist and editor at The Guardian. We're discussing his book, The Best-Selling, The Escape Artist, The Man Who Broke Out of Auschwitz to Warn the World. Uh, Mr. Freeland, thank you very much for joining me. Good to be with you, David. So what attracted you to this subject? Uh, Did you have an interest in the Holocaust from an early age?
1: I think probably like a lot of people of my age, I'm now in my mid-50s, I grew up, I I think it's fair to say, in the shadow of the Holocaust. I think being Jewish and and, and growing up in Europe, growing up in Britain, uh, as I did, uh, one felt constantly aware of its presence. I mean, there were Holocaust survivors around, and they weren't then, as they are now, very frail, often even, you know, wizened characters. They were people in the flush and prime of their life. You know, there were people around in my life who were in their 40s, 50s and 60s who were survivors of the Holocaust. So I was always aware of it, always, I think, fascinated by it. And the proof of that, I mean, so that I know I'm not just now imposing that view of myself on then, the proof of that is indeed the incident that led to the this book, which is that when I was 19, in the mid-1980s, I went to see... Claude landsman 's epic documentary film, Shoah, a nine and a half hour long film shown in two sessions at a London movie theatre, the Curzon in Mayfair. So that was the kind of 19 year old I was that I went to see a Holocaust documentary. And as you know, it's an extremely unusual film full of no archive, only interviews and interviewees who had witnessed the killing of six million Jews in one form or other, witnessed the process, and then exploding onto the screen following the succession of very grey, broken men and women, or at least that's how they looked to me, age 19, suddenly exploded onto the screen, this charismatic, uh, younger, vigorous, stronger figure, this man, Rudolf Werber. And it was... Hearing his story that stayed with me for decades until eventually it came out in this book, The Escape Artist.
0: Now, uh, he passed away before you wrote this book. So, how did you get uh, access to such good information about him?
1: Well, as you say, he died in 2006. He had been interviewed in two or three key places for this almost unique fact, which is he was one of the tiny handful of Jews who had escaped. From Auschwitz. A vanishingly tiny number of Jews ever managed to do that and to make their way to freedom, less than ten, I think, ever managed to do that. That's why people like Claude Landsman in that film I mentioned, in Shoah, you know, beat a path to go and see him and to talk to him. Although oddly, Landsman was not that fascinated by the fact that he escaped. But to me, age 19, sitting there in the movie theatre. It was an extraordinary thing. I knew enough to know that Jews essentially did not escape from Auschwitz, and yet he had. And it meant, therefore, there were two or three interviews that had been done. Uh, and there were transcripts of those. Landsman, he interviewed him for hours. And therefore, there were, uh, you know, the number of pages of transcript went into triple figures. Similarly, a very landmark documentary series made here in Britain called The World at War, had also interviewed Werber, and again, there was a transcript of that. Above all, there was a memoir that Rudolf Werber himself had published in 1963, which gave a lot of information. Nevertheless, what really made the difference for me was two people. Uh, one is Rudolf Werber's widow is still alive and living in the United States. Her name is Robin Werber, almost a generation younger than Rudy. Uh, When they met, he was nearly 50. She was just 24. Uh, So she's alive and well and was a wonderfully generous source. But also, Rudy had been married before. And the woman he had married, uh, I knew when I began working on this book, that she had at some point come to London. I knew that if she were alive, when I was thinking of this back in 2020, she would be 93. And I knew she'd been a professor in an academic institution. And I did that thing that journalists sometimes do, which is where you almost make up an email address, working out what someone's email address would hypothetically be. I sent an email to this address thinking, you know, this may be picked up by an administrator. This may be picked up by a bereaved son or daughter. Instead, within 20 minutes, I got a reply back saying, Dear Jonathan, I am very glad to hear from you. I am living in Muswell Hill, which is a neighbourhood about 20 minutes away from where I'm talking to you now, David. And I went to see her right away. It was during the COVID summer of 2020. Um, We sat in her garden, socially distanced, and she began telling me stories of the man she had been married to, but crucially she had also been, if you like, his teenage sweetheart. She had known him when she was 12 and he was 14. And therefore she was able to tell me about the boy before the man and about the boy before he went to Auschwitz. And those five or six conversations were to prove so valuable And culminating, as they did, in one amazing moment where she said to me, I've asked my grandson to be here with us because there's something upstairs I want you to have. And the 25-year-old grandson came down with a red suitcase and the two of them handed me this suitcase. And she said, those are Rudy's letters. I want you to have them. And inside, the suitcase was brimming with handwritten letters from Rudolf Verber that had never been seen by any historian or writer before. And that gave me huge amounts of insight into Rudy the man. So that, coupled with those transcripts and his own memoir, meant I had a huge amount to get going on.
0: Now, Rudy is a name that he developed later in life. He was not born with the name Rudy. His original name was, uh, was Walter Rosenberg. That's right. So can you go back for our listeners, where was he born, who were his parents, and why did he need to kind of escape from where he uh, grew up? Well, that's right. He
1: was born in Slovakia, in rural Slovakia. Um, very early in his life, his family migrated massively east until they were virtually at the border with Ukraine, as it would be today. His father was um, a sawmill owner, but his father died when Walter was just four years old. The family then went on the move. His mother was a single mother who had to raise him alone. She would uh, travel, making and selling women's underwear. He spent a lot of that time either living with his Orthodox Jewish grandfather. Walter himself grew up with the traditional peyot, the side curls of an Orthodox Jew. He wore the tzitzit, the ritual fringes of an Orthodox Jew. But he was very, very bright. That was spotted in him very early. It was said that age two, he could be seen reading the newspaper. And therefore he was sent eventually to a very elite gymnasium, sort of high school in Bratislava, one of the very best, was doing well in the book. I republish a photograph of his class. He's there at the centre of the picture. All was on course until the day in 1938, where he turned up for the academic year in the September, only to be told, "You're no longer welcome. There is no place for you at this school because you are a Jew," and uh, he had to leave Bratislava and, together with his mother, went to the provincial town of Tarnova. In um, rural Slovakia, I've been there, it really is a small place, you know, one village square and a few streets off the square. And there, with the other Jews, and there were 3,000 or so, with the other Jewish teenagers, he would sort of roam around because they were no longer allowed to go to school. They would look at a bulletin board in the village square where more or less each day came word of some new edict that would prevent them being free, telling them they were no longer allowed to travel, no longer allowed to keep sports equipment or a radio or to own their own businesses and so on. And uh, one day a thud on the doormat came, a letter arrived and it was an instruction to turn up at a certain place at a certain time, carrying no more than 25 kilograms of baggage, ready to be deported. And the 17-year-old Walter, as he was by then, thought, well, I'm i am not going to obey this instruction. I am Slovakian. I am a Slovak. That's when you have to identify yourself. He wrote that he was a Czechoslovak citizen. That's how he identified He thought, no, I'm not going to do it. And he began the first of several escapes. And the reason, one reason why the book is called The Escape Artist is he was a serial escapologist, if you like. He constantly, through his life, before and after Auschwitz, actually, would attempt escapes. And this was one of his first. In his fantasy, he thought he would get himself to London. uh, But his first port of call was to try and get into Hungary, And he had some success, but eventually uh, fate caught up with him. And he was caught and sent to a, initially at that stage, a deportation, a kind of transit camp of Novaki in Slovakia. And there he would try and actually succeed in escaping again, only to be caught again. So escape and fleeing. The Nazi allied the fascist government of Slovakia. Worth stressing that this government, the one that said that Jewish kids were no longer welcome at school, was not Nazi or German occupied. This was a fascist government, but it was the Slovaks governing themselves. They were not under direct orders from Adolf Hitler. This was a fascist government in Slovakia that said to Jews like the young Walter Rosenberg, you are no longer welcome. And he was just not having it and tried to escape.
0: So he did escape from the camp and then was caught, brought back to another camp. And then at that point, was he told that he needed to go to a different camp, Auschwitz? Is that the sequence? It
1: is. I mean, it's even more amazing than that, because you're quite right. He's in Novaki, He escapes. He gets caught again. He's sent to Majdanek, uh, then thought of as a concentration camp. But as you and I and listeners will know, was actually eventually a death camp, a place of industrialised death. They were looking for volunteers. He wasn't ordered to Auschwitz. They said, we need 400 or so workers who will be doing outdoor farm work. And young Walter Rosenberg there in Majdanek, age 17, thinks, well, however bad that place is, it can't be worse than this dump of Majdanek that I'm in. I'm going to volunteer. He raises his hand and volunteers to be sent to somewhere else. He does not know where this place is. He is then, with the others, put on a cattle car, a cattle wagon, and sent by train in an arduous, desperately awful journey without food or drink or sanitation to a place in the East, and its name is only revealed to him when he arrives. And what's so extraordinary when he arrives on that last day of June in 1942 at Auschwitz is he is relieved to be there. He thinks this place Looks like a relatively civilized place compared to where he's been, because the buildings are made of brick, the roads are paved, whereas he's been in somewhere of flimsy wooden barracks. He's been a place where the tracks are are just dirt and mud, and he thinks, okay, this is something I can deal with. And even where he sees the sign at the entrance, the notorious sign, "Arbeit macht frei," work makes you free, he thinks, all right. If work is the answer, I can work. I'm 17. I'm physically pretty strong. I can make this work for me. And that's his first realization or first reaction to the places arrived, which is, of course, notoriously Auschwitz.
0: Now, uh, what happened to his mother? When did his mother disappear? Well, it's a,
1: it's to jump ahead a bit because she manages to stay in the hometown of Taranova to avoid deportation. And that's partly because uh, there were exemptions from the deportations for anybody who could prove they were economically indispensable. If you could prove that to the Slovak authorities, then you weren't put on at least those first round uh, deportations, those first rounds of trains. She was then the partner, not yet married to a new man, not not, uh, Walter's father, who could prove that he was indispensable and was allowed... Uh, to nominate one relative uh, who could stay with him. And he had to choose between his sister and the woman he was with, uh, Walter's mother, and he chose uh, Walter's mother. And he made her his wife. And therefore she was able to stay for a long stretch of time. I mean, you know, I don't want to run too far ahead of ourselves, but she was there for most of the next two years and... Later on, things would change, and things would change for her. But for that initial period, she was exempt.
0: Let's go back to Auschwitz. At Auschwitz, at the time, it was widely thought by most people who didn't really know the details that you went there as a work camp. And to deceive you about that being a work camp, the Nazis would say, bring your belongings, things you need, because you're going to be needing your possessions. and so. As you point out in the number of interviews I've seen you give and in the book, it was deception all along by the Nazis to say, guess what? You're going to come to a work camp, you're going to be able to work, and life will be better. So wasn't that part of what was going on, the deception by the Nazis about what was really going on there? It, It really was, David. I mean, it
1: was central to what the Nazis were doing. Rudy, like a lot of people who worked at Auschwitz, remember the life expectancy of a Jew in Auschwitz is measured for most, the overwhelming majority in hours. Most arrive there, certainly in the period we're talking about, once you're into 1942, 43, they arrive instantly and are sent, as people I think know, to gas chambers where they are poisoned, gassed to death, and then their bodies burnt. A smaller percentage, between 5 and 10%, were selected instead for work. Uh, what the Nazis in their own documents referred to as annihilation through labour this was another form of killing, in other words, that you were put to work with a view to being killed. Obviously, the people involved didn't know that. Rudy, when he arrives, Walter, when he arrives, rather, is put to work. He is a slave, to all intents and purposes, a slave worker. And he's bounced around different tasks, but two really matter in terms of the point you've just asked Uh, of me. The first place is known as Canada. It's a nickname that the prisoners give this place. Canada, in European imagination of the time, in the 1930s and 40s, was thought of as a land of unimaginable plenty, a place where the streets are paved with gold. It was a place lots of Slovaks and Czechs and others had gone and made their fortune. And therefore, the prisoners in Auschwitz call this place Canada because there is huge abundance there. There is so much stuff there. Rudy's job is to go there and carry some of these bags and piles of stuff. And it's as if there are just giant warehouses, six of them, and piles of clothes, of pots, of pans, of children's exercise books, of toys. What is this place? Walter would later admit that to his embarrassment that he didn't know straight away, didn't understand straight away what he was looking at. Afterwards, the penny drops that this is the place where the possessions of those Jews who've been sent to Auschwitz are taken. They arrive on these trains, on these cattle cars. Immediately, their suitcases, their luggage is taken from them. And it is brought to this area known as Canada, giant sort of courtyard surrounded by warehouses. Slowly, Walter looks around and realises Yes, I can see men's clothes and women's clothes, but I can also see children's clothes. And yet, when I look around the camp itself, there are no children. Therefore, there is more stuff here than there are people. And slowly, very... And as I say, he was almost embarrassed that it took him a week or two for the penny to drop. But the penny drops that there are more stuff here than people because they are being put to death, that Auschwitz is a place of industrial slaughter. And that conclusion is a turning point for him because no such place in human history had ever existed. But the second point which related, he then works on the ramp, the alte ramp, the old Jew ramp, as it was known, Uh, a railway platform, where each transport arrives day after day. He realises there that every single one of those Jews getting off the trains has no idea of the function of this place. Why? Because they have been lied to. Exactly as you say, they have been deceived every step of the way. And the significance of that is that that's, of course, why they had brought pots and pans and children's exercise books, because they think they're beginning new lives, not just a work camp, as you said, but really a new Jewish community where they could live and thrive And then the Nazis who hold them have encouraged them to think that. They've told them at every step of the way, you know, make sure you tell somebody your occupation so that you can work in your chosen field, tie your shoes together so you can collect them after you've been for a shower, uh, which, of course, we know was a shower out of which no one comes out alive because it was a gas chamber. Deception was central to the Nazi killing method. And Rudy, working on that ramp, Walter Rosenberg, as he then was, sees that deception is vital for the SS and for the Nazis because it ensures that the Jews getting off those trains behave with relative calm, relative quiet, relative order. And order is exactly what the Nazis need for that machine that they've built, this killing machine, to operate efficiently.
0: So at the time that one arrives at Auschwitz, I think I read in your book or elsewhere that eighty percent or four out of five of those who get off the train are basically going to go to the showers right away and twenty percent are not. Is that right? I think the figures are closer to ninety percent percent
1: to their death straight away.
0: Right. Mm. So why was Walter not one of those ninety percent who went to the shower right away?
1: Well, exactly. Uh the The way that would work is this notorious scene of selection on the railway platform. Those sent to their deaths are sent to the left. Those who will be worked to death or used as slave labour sent to the right. Those who are very young children or very old are sent immediately to the left of the gas chambers. And by very old, really, we're often talking about anyone over 40. It's really not very old. And anyone really younger than 16 will be sent to their deaths where that category uh, breaks down a bit is with women, because women, even if they are in the age where they might otherwise be fit to work, between the ages of 16 and 40, if they are with their children, they, as mothers, they are deemed immediately f- for the left and sent off to die. And that's partly because the SS thought that the scenes of separation between mothers and children, the screaming and the trauma of that, would itself bring delay and would panic people. And they were so bent on order that it was simpler for any mother with children under 16 to go with her children and be murdered. And it is why some of the whispered advice of prisoners to mothers would be, give away your children, give up your children, hand your children over to somebody older and save yourself. Advice that is so uh, uh, incomprehensibly horrible and and horrific that many many women just obviously could not follow that advice, but that was the selection rule, and therefore a seventeen year old fit and strong Walter Rosenberg, as then was, would be one of those sent to the right to work.
0: Now, in the Nazi concentration camps like Auschwitz, there were two types of Jews who were there. Uh, there were the regular prisoners work slaves. And then there were those who were the capos, you would say. The ones who were working, they were basically trying to save their own lives so they would have jobs to work there, but they were, you know, doing the Nazis bidding, you could argue, because they were making certain that the other prisoners did things that the way the Nazis wanted them to do. Was Walter one of those people, or did he have a special assignment that enabled him to kind of stay alive and not do all the hard work, but also to not fear of having to be executed.
1: So you're right. The Nazi system worked with very few, actually, SS or Germans doing the dirty work, as you rightly put it. They had enforcers, the so-called capos. They were drawn from a whole range of prisoners. There were Polish capos. There would have been German capos, often drawn from the criminal classes people who wore the green triangle on their uniforms, a symbol that they were a convicted common criminal, murderers, thieves, and so on. So there could be capos from all those groups. But yes, there were some Jews who were in that job acting as Nazi enforcers, wielding clubs and sticks where the SS themselves had automatic weapons. Those capos often had first you know, grip on the... Uh, jobs that had to be done in the camp that meant you didn't have to do backbreaking work, uh, often administrative jobs, as the, you know, for example, the registrar, the clerk on the at the camp uh, at each barracks who would keep tabs of numbers. For example, over time, the resistance, and there was a resistance in Auschwitz. Incredible though that may seem, an underground managed through a whole variety of means, including blackmailing the SS uh, and their Nazi captors, managed to get some of those jobs for themselves and for their own people. And Walter managed to get in with the resistance. He was young and he was fit and he had many languages. And I think those are all reasons why the resistance deemed him useful initially as a kind of courier. If you had that, they, they would help you and they helped him. They got him a job as what he called it later on, a barracks pen pusher. He was a registrar whose job was to log the number of prisoners. So therefore he was able to eat. He had better rations of food, nothing, you know, not, not anything we would consider normal, but more than the other prisoners and even able to wear clothes outside the notorious striped uniform.
0: So the way you describe it in your book, if I have it right, is the people who are the inmates, the slaves, the people that have been sent there involuntarily, they have barracks, and we've seen these barracks before. They're basically hardwood. You sleep on hardwood. There are communal toilets, most basic of kind of facilities, I would say. And then you slept there, but then you did some of your work outside of the barrack area in a fenced off area. And then when you're done your work, during the day, you go back to the barracks area. And then there's a third area outside of that work area. And can you describe that third area and why that was so important to understanding how it might be possible to escape?
1: Yeah, so there's an inner camp and an outer camp. Um, The inner camp is, as you say, what would be where the slaves would sleep at night under extraordinarily harsh guard with searchlights and uh, barbed wire, and of course, you know, machine gun posts, watchtowers every 80 yards or so. And then that sort of perimeter, that cordon would be lowered in the morning when everyone would go off to work, and an outer perimeter containing the outer areas of the camp where work went on would go up. And in the period that we're talking about by about 1944, they were beginning to build an area, it was like a building site, that was to prepare for a new wave of inmates. And it was nicknamed by the prisoners Mexico. So there was Canada, but there was also Mexico. And that was a huge construction site. And that would play a pivotal role. I'm going to hold back exactly how the young Walter Rosenberg and Fred Wetzler, his friend also from Ternova in Slovakia, how exactly they pulled off their escape partly because i want people to read the book but also it's it's complicated to explain how exactly they did it suffice to say through rather brilliant insight they and a couple of other prisoners who made the same move before they did although without success had discovered what i would call a gap in the nazi defences not a literal gap there was no hole in the fence somewhere, but rather a kind of loophole in the Nazi protocols, let's put it that way. And it was by exploiting that, that Rudolf Ferber, as he would become Walter Rosenberg then, and Fred Wetzler were able to pull off an extraordinary escape. And, you know, like a lot of men, I think of my generation who was raised on World War II stories, I know quite a few World War escape stories, the movies and so on. You know, I'm biased, but I think by far and away this one is the most thrilling because it's the most improbable. Auschwitz was the place under tightest guard anywhere in Nazi occupied Europe. To be a Jew in Auschwitz was to have the least chance of escape of anybody in uh, occupied Europe, and yet somehow they pulled it off.
0: Well, we finished the first part of our conversation with Jonathan Freeland, and uh, we're going to have a second part uh, another time. But I want to thank you, Mr. Friedland, for agreeing to do this conversation and for taking us through the first part of this story.
1: My pleasure. Good to be with you.
0: On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs@nyhistory.org. at nyhistory.org.